1: Hello and welcome to episode 1 of John Richardson and the Future Noughts, how to survive the apocalypse. I am John Richardson, professional wingbag and defeatist, and I am joined by the Future Noughts, who are Mark Stevenson. Hello. Hello and Ed Gillespie. Hello. Hello. Mark and Ed are the two experts who are invited before I make a series like Ultimate Warrior to make me look more informed and intelligent and this podcast will attempt to lay bare that entire process by proving that in fact I know nothing and they know everything. Each episode we'll discuss some of the problems facing our society and through an attempt to find some optimism, we'll offer up some solutions as well. As my co-pilots on this journey, Mark and Ed, are um, insightful, interesting and witty people and they can tell you exactly what the future will be in five years, right guys? I'm not sure that's strictly true, but you know. No, I'll take it. Yes, take the compliment where it's offered. (laughs) They both know more than me and frankly are of more use to society than me. However, people seem to uh, follow me on Twitter and not them. So this podcast (laughs) is an attempt to reverse that process. If I have one goal for this podcast series, it's that by the end, I have three followers left and they are my wife, my neighbours and my mum. And everyone else has realized, why wouldn't I just listen to these two in the first place? So, um, (laughs) I mean, we're obviously now we're under difficult circumstances. What would you say you do or what did you do before the world ended? Mark? So my job, if I have
2: one, is to help people think about the questions the future is asking us and then try and architect the way they do things, whether that's the way they invest or the way they recruit or the way they do TV shows or whatever to try and answer those questions well in the service of making the world more
1: sustainable, humane, equitable, and just? You can tell I've said that before. can't you? Well, that's a good answer, and it's, uh, it strikes at an optimism that what I find fascinating about uh, both of you is that you spend more of your time looking into the future than most people, and you're very aware of the problems we have. And you haven't walked into the wilderness and abandoned your families, which, as a vote of <laughs> confidence for the fact that there may be a viable future for the planet, I find astounding. Well, my wife pays off the mortgage. Well, there's no mortgage on a shed in the woods, mate.
0: And I am actually delivering this uh, podcast from Rockall in the North Atlantic, where I'm strapped <laughs> onto a rock in a small survival capsule.
1: A little treat there for anyone listening who wants to uh, get on Google Maps and find Ed. Um, Mark, I think uh, this may be unfair to say, I think you're more optimistic than Ed. Do you feel that's fair, Ed?
0: I oh, d- <laughs> Well, I, I think, yeah, it's probably a, there's a guarded optimism I have. I think it's a sort of dark optimism um, that it feels like things are going to get a little bit shifty and shady and bumpy. I believe we will ultimately get through a lot of this stuff. But I think it's it's a risk where we come into facing the challenges of the future with too much ego and hubris. Because it's that sort of heroic narrative which got us into part of the problems we're in at the moment.
2: I agree. I mean, I'm, I call myself a possibilist. People call me a futurist, which I rather hate.
1: Um, but I'm, I'm a possibilist. Should have had this conversation before we named the podcast, really, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I think John Richardson and the possibilists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I talk a lot
2: about the good, the bad and the ugly, which is the bad is that pretty much everything is broken, whether that's democracy inequality, climate change, you know, pandemic <laughs> response uh, to be topical. Most of it's fixable if we change the way we do things and the way we think about society. But the ugly news is the next 30 years are gonna be quite messy as we move from the old world to the new one. And that's kind of what mine and job is, is helping to husband in the new world or midwife it in without too many people being pollaxed
1: in the process. Fantastic already to get a time frame. So Mark on record as saying that thirty-one years time, everything's gonna be fine. This will have all blown over. This is this is what I got you guys in for. We can all have a vague chat. Very few people listening to this will know, all right, thirty years, let's start planning. I'm gonna be what, sixty-seven? Um so I'll have about three and a half years left to enjoy the new dawn. Yeah, exactly. I'll be pushing 80. Well, I mean, on the North Sea, who will know? It'll just be you and some manatee. So um, you'll be fine anyway. It's it's worth a brief conversation now about language because we had a loose idea that the questions we would ask on this uh, podcast relating to each topic were, how fucked are we? Why are we fucked? And how do we unfuck ourselves? I'm aware those are the first F-bombs. Apologies to those listening to the podcast who uh, don't want to hear them. But... You've already, both of you, said enough that I feel like it's not really a flip conversation. The tone of what we're saying is serious
0: enough that I think fuck is probably the right word. It's totally the right word. One of the things I've been doing in the lockdown is finally being compelled to learn Italian from my girlfriend. And we've been having this conversation because, you know, in the UK, we would say you get effed or get fucked, um, Mm. you know, unless you're in Glasgow, in which case it's get to fuck. In America, uh, it's, it's go fuck yourself. Um, or go fuck your mum, which is really charming. But in in Italy, it's like go and get effed in the A. It's like it's really <laughs> poetic and Mediterranean um, style.
1: Can you say that for us in Italian, please,
0: Ed? Uh, from culo.
1: Lovely. Well, um, if you want to know what life on lockdown is like, Ed has been with his girlfriend for two weeks and uh, has learned how to say, go and F yourself in the A. So.
2: Well, I mean, one of the things about it, it's, you know, it does expose relationships, you know, the loads of people in Wuhan, and um, when they're sort of coming out of lockdown, the divorce rate has gone through the roof because loads of people have been stuck together and finally gone. Oh, my God. God yeah. I can't stand this much of you.
1: Yeah. Um, I feel we should reference, obviously, this podcast series will touch on a lot of the topics you mentioned there, democracy, health, the economy, things like that. At the moment, it's very difficult not to talk about the unique set of circumstances we're in. So uh, we are not face to face, are we? We were planning to record these face to face. Where are you, uh, gentlemen?
0: Uh, I'm in Brixton in South London. And Mark, where do we
1: find you? Uh, I'm in my studio in New Gate, South East London. So you two are fairly close. I am in uh, West Yorkshire in the country's only remaining viable pub, The Dog and Bastard, which is... um... (laughs) I mean, you were born for this, weren't you, John? Let's be honest.
2: I mean, you're the envy of every functioning alcoholic in the country, in that you've actually got a pub in the (laughs) back garden.
1: 37 years into my life, I'm the envy of other people. (laughs) Yes, well, I've been uh, dealing with a virus of my antisocial nature over the past 37 years, so... I have been preparing for a social lockdown, don't really have any uh, friends, Uh, I've managed to get married, but we agree that that marriage works best if I have a detached space on the driveway, which I can go to and drink silently alone. So she can't hear the tears, but I am, I'm in the dog now, I've put on a suit and uh, even though the driveway is uh, about six meters long, I drove here just to feel like I've gone to work today because the car hasn't been off the driveway for about two or three weeks now. Now, the reason we are talking now and talking about this is because on Ultimate Warrior Series 2, as a result of conversations with Mark and Ed, one of the worries we discussed was the worry that there would be a global flu pandemic. Now, some people have tweeted me to say, you were prescient and you knew what was going to happen. I knew nothing until I was told by the gentleman here, Mark and Ed, and my view would have been the same as what I think most people's is that is fed by the media narrative, which was that a pandemic like this is a one-off freak occurrence And there's not a lot we can do to prepare for it. But I think you would both say that actually there were a number of warnings that this sort of thing was due.
0: Yeah, this is more like a practice run. This is a relatively, I mean, and we say this with a massive caveat of the fact that we are surrounded by alienation and death right now. Mm. But uh, this is almost like a practice run for some of the bigger systemic challenges like the climate crisis, which are coming down the tracks towards us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and strangely, I think it's it's quite well timed in a way because a lot of people have suddenly started talking, well, you know, when the rickety house starts to burn down, you don't want to go and rebuild the same rickety house. You know, this no. gives us a bit of a pause to sort of rethink where we're going. It's quite interesting to see how different countries are dealing with it and different ideologies are dealing with it. I saw a tweet the other day which said, uh, if capitalism is so great, how come socialism has to come and save it every every 10 years? And I'm not saying that politically, but I think there's something quite interesting there about how the social contract and how fragile it is has been exposed by this crisis. And that's going to play out because all of us are going to, you know, be sitting at home for 12 weeks, sort of very much reassessing our priorities. And, uh, you know, we've got the social contract where most people go to to go to work. They don't like the job they do. 85% of us don't like the work we do. We come home stressed about that with a mental health burden, you know. That makes everything worse. So, so I think what this this outbreak does is it sort of exposes all those things mm. that really we might want to think about again. And what's happening at the moment is loads of the assumptions about how the world works have mm. just been proven to be untrue. And that yeah. uh, that means that the impossible at the moment is is more possible than it's ever been if we're prepared to look past this and, and go beyond. So some people say we kind of had that chance in 2008 when the financial markets crashed and we kind of squandered it. And in fact, actually, it got worse because we ended up with more debt and more leverage, if you understand the sort of financial terms, than we had then. But um, I think this one's different because people are actually feeling this one in a way that they didn't feel the last one because of the the unique nature of it. So
1: you would go back to 2008 as a sort of part of a warning system of, well, that was a a sort of an earthquake through the way we run our lives and we chose to sort of double down on the system as we had it.
0: Yeah, and I think the theme of that is sort of like massive overextension and then fragility. So I think in 2008, you saw it through... Through financial crises, you know, which were essentially the fact that you had people packaging up debt in the form of mortgages that couldn't be paid you know and then that debt was then sold on and on through multiple different parties till no one knew whether there was any kind of veracity about the potential repayment at all um so hence the sort of toxic debt which then when the music stopped and everyone realized that actually there wasn't enough money there to cover all of that um existing debt and you can see that in the same way in the sort of just-in-time supply chains that we have now in so many areas of our lives which is why supermarket shelves empty which is why you know we have a national toilet roll crisis and actually even the overrunning of our healthcare system in the face of a pandemic where you know the, the primary purpose of this lockdown is at least one way just trying to stop hospitals and overwrought medical staff being overwhelmed.
1: So how do you go about doing that because in my, I, I, I totally agree with what you said there but I can't envisage a system we could set up where you had a healthcare system that was set up for this kind of thing as and when I mean you'd need entire cities of hospitals wouldn't you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but part of it is about, you know, the well-being of the nation, I guess, you know, one of the reasons right. you can be more vulnerable if you're a sort of slightly overweight smoker, then you're obviously going to be much more at risk. To a kind of respiratory disease that comes running towards you, because you won't be able to run away from it, either literally or metaphorically. Yeah. I
2: mean, what we've what we've done is we've we've got healthcare systems that run as sort of like, you know, for business as usual. You know, we kind of figure this many people are gonna die of roughly this many diseases and in this mix, you know, and at this age group or whatever. And then because we've tried to run them on almost like business rules, there's no there's no spare capacity. And We've realised that you can't run a health system like that, particularly when there's something strange comes along. There's a great quote from a guy called Gaylord Nelson, an American senator. He said, we have to remember that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And what we've also just discovered this month is that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the health system, not the other way around. Because the health system can't cope, actually, you you could argue that if we would have spent far more than we need on a brilliant healthcare system for everybody, whilst it would have been very expensive, it would have been a lot cheaper than what's mm. happened to the world economy at the moment. So this is one mm. of the assumptions that breaks. So I think what this, this outbreak does, it sort of exposes all those things that really we might want to think about again, not just because they're nice to house, but actually if you want to run an economy, if you want to run a society that's functioning and successful and where people have the stuff they need, then perhaps you want to spend a bit more on things like mental health, well being, employment contracts that are exploitative, decent healthcare, you know, all that, all that kind of good stuff, which we've all been told is too expensive. But we've just found out that not having it is a lot more expensive.
0: And I think that comes round to this point, you know, it's one of the reasons why we called the podcast How to Survive the Apocalypse, because Mm. I think we think about apocalypse as the end of the world, as sort of doomsday, Armageddon. But in actual fact, if you go back to the original meaning of the word, it's about the uncovering and the revealing of things as they actually are. You know, it's the drawing back of the veil. And I think what... You know, things like the coronavirus do, as Mark said, is, you know, they draw back the veil and make us realize that actually a lot of the plumbing and pipework underneath is in a real, real mess. And so, going back to your original question, John, which is, you know, to what extent um, this can manifest as a sort of dry run. Well, I mean, people want to attribute. The coronavirus and the pandemic to the wrong people eating the wrong type of undercooked bat or mm. you know or tucking into a pangolin burger when they shouldn't be that it's somehow bad luck uh, that this has happened to humanity and that it can be blamed on someone but this is just the latest in a series of you know these sort of zoonosis potential pandemics you know hiv ebola um, sars and mers all have some kind of animalistic origin where a kind of virus like this has jumped species. And most of those things come from the way that we are treating the rest of the world, which is, you know, deforestation and encroachment and changes in land use, which which mean we are occupying more and more of those wild spaces. Uh, they come from the antimicrobial resistance that we start to build up. Uh, when we use antibiotics willy-nilly and the microbes become resistant. They come from the intensive livestock agriculture we practice, plus the trade in, in wild and endangered species. And all of that being exacerbated by climate change actually means that things like this pandemic are actually likely to happen more often than they would do previously. So we're getting a massive warning shot across the bows now, on top of many other previous warning shots, which is saying the way that we're living isn't working. And as Mark just said, you know, and also a lot of the work that we're doing is meaningless and purposeless. And so there's all sorts of combining factors coming together, which means we could be in a position for a radical shakeup. And yet, as we learned in 2008, the potential for a progressive, a positive outcome from these type of crises is only a possibility. It's not a probability. We have to fight for it uh, and we have to be ready to demobilize to make it happen.
1: Oh, no, Olivia, I'm still reeling from the revelation from Mark that 85% of us are unhappy with our work, given that this is our first podcast, and that's nearly all of us. So that means <laughs> both of you are unhappy with this before we've even started, and uh, about 20% of me. Um, it is a remarkably shared experience, isn't it? I think it's very rare, you know, spoken to various, when you speak to family and friends and people you work with, you get a good sort of cross-section of people. Everybody is struggling at the moment. It's very rare you can say to people, well... This is happening to everybody on the planet. You know, usually yeah. your various mood fluctuations, or as you talk about problems with your health or your job, they, they feel like quite personal things to you. But broadly now, talking about how do we instigate some systemic change, it's very rare we can get together globally and say, well, this has been awful for everyone. Yeah. So what are we going to do going forward? It's a great yeah.
0: leveler, but it also exposes great divides. I think. So, yes, we're all in it together, but some people are actually obviously facing far, far more serious challenges mm-hmm. uh, than others. And so I think it is a lot of those existing inequalities which we've perhaps tolerated for way too long. And it comes back to the fact that you know we, what we might get out of this systemically is a revaluation of who actually serves useful and productive and valuable roles in society. You know, we realise, of course, without question, the validity and the role of, of medical staff and NHS workers, mm-hmm. um, but also bus drivers recycling you know operatives people who do the key workers the people who are are making sure that you can buy food and that those distribution networks still exist and anyone who's done any homeschooling is going to be taking their hat off to teachers um Mm -hmm. in terms of the role that they play with the kids and those are all you know traditional public service roles that we've really undervalued and underappreciated i think where does this leave comedians then do you think in this (laughs) new hierarchy i think comedians are put onto the top of the mountain where they belong (laughs) <laughs> do you
1: know from a guy uh in his garage shouting towards a duvet that he's masking taped into the corner <laughs> of his room i don't feel like i'm currently on top of the mountain um yeah. i mean i take no joy in being right about the fact that terrible things are going to happen but um i'm hoping there'll be some sort of governmental role for me going forwards uh people will realize that you know I knew, I knew everything.
0: But that's interesting, isn't it? In terms of, because I think this this is part of the challenge. You know, it's a letting go. It's a kind of having to embrace a degree of uncertainty. You know, we're always very comfortable in thinking we know what might happen. And suddenly we're all being thrust into this moment where you have to put down your ego. You know, you have to perhaps lose a bit of touch with your identity or your role or your status or your income or your job. And we're all, we're all a bit stripped back to the the raw bones of who we are. I always go back to this quote from um, this French dude, Blaise Pascal, who said all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And I think, you know, we can see that in terms of why are we fucked is like, Basically, it sort of boils down to the fact that we have a fairly dysfunctional relationship with ourselves. You know, we're often not prepared to look into the dark corners of our own psyches and souls, which is why we constantly distract ourselves, whether it's binge eating, you know, smoking, drugs, over drinking, you name it. You know, being plugged into Netflix for 16 hours a day, all of those things are all a distraction from being able to sit comfortably with yourself. And you mean all
2: the things that people are mainlining on now that they're all in lockdown.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I know, but but then there's then the flip side of that. And this is what I'm saying, and this is what I'm, I mean. I think it's part of. The challenge because I, I don't believe all of those things are still distractions you know whether you can go out or not I think Blaise Pascal was really onto something there you know it's our inability to sit quietly in, in a room alone which is at the core of this and then the other layer of that is then obviously our inability to have a healthy relationship and, and understand our position in nature that you know that we're an integral and intimate part of it that we're not separate from it that it's interdependent and interconnected and what we do to the natural environment we ultimately somehow do to ourselves and if you can wrangle with those two questions that i think is explains the kind of how are we fucked we can't tolerate ourselves uh, and we don't understand our relationship with the wider planet
2: this is why i never invite ed to parties <laughs> 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 yeah
1: we've we've um i mean we've gone about it a sort of 15 20 minute route but we've we've answered the question is ed perhaps slightly less optimistic about the future than mark <laughs> i feel that that that's sort of come across but I, I while you were talking earlier about our, our relationship with food and the health system and things like that i was thinking about exactly the point you were just making i had a line in a show years ago which was when the lights go off and your head hits the pillow at night that's who you are and that's yeah. you know, that's the point at which you have to confront everything because there is literally nothing to even look at and i think a lot of it it, it feels like broadly we're all quite unhappy which don't get me wrong i have profited massively i always say anyone who's at my gigs basically a cry for help you know you don't come and see comedians in general and certainly not me because everything's happy and the worst gigs i've ever had in my life are in the most sort of comfortable areas where you know the sort of london commuter belt quite well off areas where where people are broadly happy with their lives i've got nothing to say to those people you know you need a bit yeah. of a scream and a bit of an outlet of oh this is absolutely awful isn't it and i'm glad we're all together sharing the fact that this is awful but how do you go about shifting what well, i guess what i'm broadly saying is most people to me feel unhappy that's why we drink
0: and that's why we eat shit how do you go about turning that around well, I think you've got to give them purpose and meaning, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, in this situation, we've seen this massive uh, like response to volunteering for the NHS. You know, six hundred thousand people. You've got people connecting with their neighbours in the community WhatsApp groups and you know mutual aid networks to make sure that the vulnerable and the elderly are all taken care of. It's almost people were finally given a permission to do that, and also mm-hmm. the space and time to do that because we all live such sort of busy adult lives that we don't get a chance to care or reflect because we're always 24-7 on our own responsibilities, you know, putting food on the table, just trying to keep the wheels turning on everything and suddenly when the wheels come off you realize that actually the things that genuinely make you happy are hopefully spending time with your family <laughs> and that can be obviously <laughs> a double-edged sword much. but not too much but also connecting with your neighbors, having a sense of, of that community and realizing that there's there's a purpose and meaning behind a lot of that.
2: Yeah well Daniel Dennett the philosopher says that uh, one of the occupational hazards of being a philosopher is you get asked difficult questions at parties so you know he'll be at a party and they'll go uh, all right daniel what's consciousness he'll be like it's my night off leave me alone we've we'll talked <laughs> about that for two thousand years uh but he says another question he gets asked at parties is uh, what's the definition of happiness he says well i've got an answer for that and he says the best definition of happiness i've ever come up with or ever heard is find something more important than you are and dedicate your life to it and um be i don't think i've ever heard a better definition. And we definitely know that, you know, when you find that thing that's more important, you than know, bigger than you, whether it's your community, some people get it when they have family or whatever, when they have children. And the problem with why 85% of people are unhappy with their jobs is that all those things that they actually care about, they're asked to check in at reception. Um, So their, their salary is now bribery rather than reward. and It's bribery to forget about the fact they're probably working for an organization that's complicit in destroying their own future, whilst most of the rewards for that work go to some distant shareholder. So the social contract has been totally broken. And again, this whole crisis has totally exposed that and i mean there's a very famous story about the janitors at nasa and if you ask them what their job was uh, back in the 60s they said oh, you know my job is to put a man on the moon and because the whole organization had a purpose so even if you're doing say you know perhaps not the most inspiring or engaging job you can feel that if you're part of an organization that's doing useful stuff that's worth something in fact we find that out now completely it is people that you might think are doing you know perhaps not the most exciting or glamorous jobs you know they're they're cashiers in the supermarket or they're shelf stackers or the delivery people you know they're not comedians or pop stars but actually now we're all looking at them going wow and I would imagine that those people are having this huge upswing of kind of self importance and feeling valued uh, even though they're not so it's all, I think it's all about how we value
1: what's important and w- and where the direction of travel is that's not necessarily a job for the individual then because like as a as someone who spent a lot of time in comedy clubs, Shelf Stacker was the go-to reference for shit job that nobody wants. You know, a comedy would say, oh, you don't want to end up stacking shelves. But that is a job for society to say, actually, that job is not just stacking shelves. That is providing food to keep a society going. So that's the way we describe jobs, maybe, rather than the way that person feels about their own job, or it's both. I think it's the narrative and the narrative of who's
2: important. You know, in this moment now, it's been totally changed, hasn't it? And suddenly your DPD driver, who you used to think was a bit grumpy, you know, you're now really pleased that he exists and you've got a newfound respect because the frame has totally changed. And that's why I think it's different than 2008, because 2008, it was all numbers. But this time, people are dying. This time you're feeling it yourself because, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a hedge fund manager or a shop owner. You're pretty much feeling, as you said, John, this, the same thing, we're all in it together. And, and suddenly that, that joint humanity, but also the things that are unfair about the way we run society are exposed and felt
1: in a way that you just cannot get away with or write an editorial around. I, I was quite optimistic when you were talking Ed, about the systems that we have now. And those staying in place, like the community WhatsApp groups and the yeah. idea that if you're driving past your neighbor's house, you're going to the supermarket and you know they're more vulnerable than you, you'd ask them if they want anything. I think you're right. Those will hopefully stay in place. But to your point, Mark, about 85% of people being in jobs they don't like and starting a change towards improving that, how practical is it for, let's be honest, sort of nearly you know eight or nine in 10 of us to try and find work that is more productive and positive because most jobs at the moment aren't fun are they well no and that's because you know the way the system is built which is it's designed to reward a
2: very small number of people at the top and so what you want is to build the organizations with purpose at their center so for instance ed set up a number of organizations that are b corporations and b corporations are companies that don't just have profit as their sole indicator of whether they've done a good job or not they have you know mental well-being and social justice in there as well so it's not that we can't design organizations that don't do this but we should demand them more and, and you actually are seeing like you know the younger generation when they're going for interviews going like well what's your position on climate change and if it's not good enough then i probably don't want to work for you but mm-hmm. certainly you know that's that's for people who've got some kind of choice so we need to have you know in every change there's two things that probably need to happen one is the money needs to think and feel differently which is why ed and i spend quite a lot of our time you know battling with private banks and hedge fund managers and, and investment houses and you know some of them are very forward thinking and some of them less so but they're certainly listening a lot more than they used to so you have to get the money to feel differently and think differently but then you also need to have a cultural signal which is to say you know this is no longer acceptable to us so for instance if you look at fossil fuels for instance you probably want the big investment houses to still be investing in those companies so that they can change because they've got clout on the board they can actually say look we want you to transition to renewables, and because we're a big shareholder we can kind of force you in that direction or move you in that direction but you want you know, theatres and museums and everybody else, you know, and, and universities to be divesting from fossil fuels because that sends a very strong cultural signal. So everybody's got a role to play and you may not have the money, but you do have the ability to talk about it and demand differently. And if you have got some money and you run a company or you've got some investments, then you can also start to move that money as well, which is why actually, John, I hate to say, it's why people like you are actually very, very important because <laughs> comedy at its funniest is, is true. The things we laugh at are generally the truest. And when you, when you do nail it, you kind of go, okay, that's made me think and feel differently. Because I think every joke is like an innovation, isn't it? Because you say, you know, here's a fact, here's another fact that you both know, and I'll give you a punchline, which is something you weren't expecting, but it's still true. It's just it's a, it's a twist on that. So using comedic skills to help us think differently about
1: everyday things is one of the great things that you know people like you do. <coughs> Sadly, I've already committed to uh, the nitwit as my next tour title, but every joke is an innovation was... Uh... <laughs> Wow, if that had been on the list, I would have had to punch myself in the dick, I think.
0: <laughs> I think off the back of that as well, I mean, the other point that's sort of underlying Mark's thesis there is the fact that actually what we want is work that makes us human um, because there is a lot of labour out there which is just bullshit jobs, you know. As mm. we so That's why people are disenfranchised. But, you know, I, I was looking into this the other week because... In terms of the reboot, you know, it's always quite instructive to, and the reset or whatever kind of reimagination for a better tomorrow might come out of this particular situation. Uh, I was looking at the five regrets of the dying. Well, you know, what are the things that people actually regret on their deathbed? And we know what some of them this are. This is you another know. reason I don't invite Ed to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, But this is really important because it's like, did you live a true life? You probably felt you worked too hard. People um, didn't express their true feelings. They didn't spend enough time with their friends or family and they wished they'd been happier. And I think if you if you take those questions now as a kind of provocation to ask the bigger questions about your own life and your own society, then that can actually be really powerful because it then it takes us into this much more almost comedic improvisational space. You know, and an improv is obviously one of the most powerful tools in comedy, but it, it is about accepting of uncertainty. It is about feeling the fear a little bit and not being paralysed by it. And any comedian who's got on stage has always felt a little bit of fear, but it's accepting the ambivalence, you know, and accepting the potential offers uh, that others might have to make out there which is where I think a lot of this community cohesion and, you know, the big round of applause for the NHS comes from, you know, when people want to step out because they want to connect. There's a desperate need to manifest a sense of solidarity, which is which is actually quite a beautiful thing.
1: I loved a lot of what you said there. I, I do have to just say... Whenever the Edinburgh Festival comes back, whether it's this year or next, you perhaps should take a visit and watch some shows before you say things about uh, improvisation being one of the greatest tools in comedy. (laughs) There's some absolute dog shit improvisation going on. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, you you swung that round beautifully from The Five Regrets of the Dying, which I think... uh, I speak for everyone when I say that's something I'll probably uh, have a little pause on and think about later when I'm trying to get to sleep. But yeah, the idea that you know we start to make these changes now, how much do you believe that that's going to happen? Because you had the warning in 2008 and we've had the various other risks yeah. and we've chosen not to make those changes. I know this is bigger and it's more broadly affecting. The thing I always think back to with you, Mark, is something you said when we were planning an Ultimate Warrior episode and you said, well... Most of these changes start to happen faster when they become profitable, which is a sort of a thing no one really wants to talk about because they're seen as a sort of puritanism to doing it and that we should all do it for the greater good. But the truth is, with the system we have set up now and the way that we work it does have to be incentivized somewhat for companies and systems to change.
2: Yeah, and what we're seeing at the moment is, of course, that when a pandemic comes along, that most companies aren't profitable. Um, And it all depends on how you define profit. Because when we talk about profit, we only ever think about money in somebody's pocket. But what we're seeing now is this sort of, you know, the drawing back of the curtain, as Ed puts it, well, actually, if you want a profitable society and one that improves over time and things get better for, you know, everybody then actually a profitable society is one that has a social contract that actually works. And so that's the opportunity we have now. And I think there is a real battle going on because we could always, you say, come back out of this. You know, as happened, you know, we had a flu pandemic in 1917 and there was a lot of this talk going on then. And then we went straight into the roaring 20s because everybody went, oh, right, bloody hell, that's over with. Let's party. I think... We've got a we've got a battle and uh, I don't think it's going to suddenly reinvent itself and everything's going to be perfect. But I do think there is a an opportunity for a course correction, at least. So we can get back to somewhere perhaps more in the middle where we start to, to think about everybody a little bit more equally than the current narrative of like I win, you lose. It's all about who succeeds and sod the rest of you. I think I think we could, we could have that readjustment because, as you said, everybody's everybody's feeling it. And I wanted to go back to your point about comedy not being able to change things. Mm. I, I disagree with you entirely. Because I hope
1: I'm glad you do. Because
2: <laughs> the, thing about, the thing about comedy I've found, particularly in my work, is that you can tell a joke about something that's true and people will laugh. That if you told it to them straight, they would have punched you in the face and asked you to leave. And my favorite example of this is a cartoon I use a lot by the great Tom Toro. It was in The New Yorker. And it's a picture of three children, bedraggled children, sat outside a burning city with an adult in a sort of like a slightly torn business suit. And he's going, yeah, yeah, the planet did get destroyed. But for a beautiful moment in time, we created a lot of value for shareholders. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I've, put that, I've put that cartoon up in, you know, places like Goldman Sachs and all that kind of stuff. And they've all laughed. And you've gone, right, now you've laughed about that. Now we all know it's true. Now, what are we are going to do about it? Whereas if you'd gone in and said to them, look, I don't think shareholder value is a great way to manage a business, they'd have said, who's this hippie? So you can totally punch a lot of bubbles with humor in a way that you can't with any other art form, I think.
0: Yeah, and as as, as Mike Tyson famously said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> 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 and if you like, the sort of pandemic is, is a metaphorical punch in the face. It's like, come on. Listen, pick yourself up off the canvas. This is not working.
1: So going back to our initial sort of three questions, how fucked are we, why are we fucked and how do we unfuck ourselves? I think we've done a good job of talking about why we're fucked and why actually the systems that we have haven't you know, helped in this situation coming about. If we were to go back to the beginning and pretend we're just starting uh, the podcast, if I were to ask you how fucked are we at the moment, would you put a figure on that or... (laughs)
0: You <laughs> want one out of ten, one to one to ten. I,
1: I don't know whether it's out of ten or in terms of the sort of salvageability. I, I certainly have times when I think it's just not going to happen. You know, it's, it tends to be uh, in the darker hours of the night when my daughter is sleeping peacefully, and I think, ah, we've really fucked this. You know, I think a lot about the, uh, the view that a lot of people have that this will be the first generation that has a worse time of it than their predecessors. Mm. And I feel a great deal of guilt about that. And I guess what I'm asking is, can you tell me I'm wrong?
2: No? Okay, it. moving <laughs> forward. Uh... I think the answer is, is, is both. You're right and you're wrong. And it depends on, on what you do with that. Mm-hmm. Because what you need is, is pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. So you cannot solve the problems you've got unless you're actually very honest about the problems that, as they are. And the problem with, we have at the moment is a lot of people have been going over the world, going, "Oh, it's all right, it's fine, you know, we'll, we'll make some money or whatever." We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about climate change. We don't have to worry about the social contract breaking down. We don't have to worry about the health service because because there's something else to distract you, whether it's Netflix or the fact you, your business is making money without taking climate change or social justice seriously. So you can have that kind of idea. Where it's all broken. And it's just the way we deal with things is broken. Or you can go it's all broken because of the way we deal with things and there's something to do about that and that's a great opportunity Mm. and one of the things i say about cynicism is that cynicism is like obedience cynics will always say yeah the whole world is fucked and now but i'm not gonna do anything about it well then you're no use you're part of the problem Mm. so you know cynicism is just obedience what you need to do and everybody i know that's successful kind of goes yes of course it's bad but there again i've got something to do about that and that fills me with an awful lot of hope and you know what ed and i do you know 50 percent of our time is is you know hang around with people who are solving these problems and you know helping to get them investment or talk about them or write about them so there are a whole bunch of people out there who kind of you know every time they see a problem they don't go oh god a problem they go great something to do and i like to say they think like engineers not like politicians so when when politicians meet each other they're like oh god who's going to win this bun fight over this particular problem here whereas when engineers meet they go Oh, well, have you got
1: a problem can i help and yeah. I think
2: that's what we, we what we need to be like now as a society. It's like think like engineers, not like politicians.
1: I think that's what I hope. I mean, if I have a hope for this podcast, it will be that week on week, the topics that we discuss, you are able to, um, you know, as you've done in your books, talk about the the solutions that are out there. And I had the privilege to meet Chad from Project Drawdown recently. And the point he kept ramming home was that the solutions to all the problems we face exist generally. Most of the technologies and systems we need to implement exist. It's just a matter of getting that done. Um, Obviously, relation to the topic we're talking about now and the situation we're in now, nationally, there is obviously, there's a huge crisis to deal with. And that is about saving lives at the moment and protecting people and staying in. And do you get a sense of the people you're talking to professionally that that next phase of conversations about when this is over, what are the solutions and how to improve society? Is that starting to happen now?
0: Yeah, and it has to start to happen now because I think there's some people who are reticent and saying, well you know, is it too soon to be talking about what next? Uh, But in actual fact, you know, it'll always be too soon until it's too late. Um, And so we know that people start to sense make the stories that they tell themselves. Is this a back to normal narrative? You know, what is going to happen next? Is it sort of an accelerated new normal where we go into a world run by Amazon and Facebook and everyone meets on Zoom? Um, Or is it about this sort of rebooting and reimagination? And I think going back to your question john is like you know well how you know how fucked are we and i think it is it, it's that sort of brink moment uh where we've sort of taken everything right to the edge and in in that sense hope is a really weird type of emotion because a lot of people tend to then lurch into a sort of techno utopian it'll all be fine because technology will save us which doesn't address you know the underlying questions. Uh, and the inequalities and the other kind of dysfunctionalities that we've touched on. But I prefer to sort of come at it with this uh, idea, echoing what Mark's saying, is that action doesn't come from hope, but hope comes from the action. Uh, And again, so I think the practical things that are happening now might help us to redraw the map of where we are coming out of the other end of this crisis and how we might shape the world that lies beyond that. You know, you've got the Secretary General of the United Nations saying we need to rebuild differently what is coming out the other end of this because the, the system was dysfunctional
2: there was an editorial in the FT this week the Financial Times basically saying the social contract is broken and we need to rebuild it you know that's the Financial yeah. Times you know, there's a great Chinese proverb which is uh, best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago the next best time is now and I yeah. think a lot of people are starting to plant trees
0: no, I mean, that, and that's what Arundati Roy said in the Financial Times as well. She said, "This is a portal. You know, it's a gateway between one world and the next, and we can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us, or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it." And that's not a messianic thing. I think that's quite a sort of pragmatic. It's like going, we need to have the ideas to hand, whether that's universal basic income, whether that's radical renewable energy, whether that's the rewilding of nature, whether that's a reimagination of our diets. Whether it's a second series of Meet the Richardsons. (laughs) (laughs) All of those things. I mean, we need to have the right ideas lying around to hand for the business leaders and the the politicians of tomorrow to be able to implement.
1: So if we could move on then to the tertiary point and i just wanted to say the word tertiary the how do we unfuck ourselves we've we've chatted already broadly about broad directions and i i don't think many people could disagree with a lot of the stuff we've suggested and the utopian society we want to move towards in terms of practical possibly quite small changes that can be made as we come out of this how do we go about unfucking the situation as it is now What you really want is a thing you can say to other people. You can say, I heard this great podcast, um, that sexy guy uh, from Dave and his two mates were talking. Here's a thing I heard, and here's a a branch of optimism I can offer. Do you have any practical take-home things that can happen that we can do to help unfuck ourselves from the situation we're in now? The best thing you can do
2: in order to protect yourself from the virus is to boost your immune system because you're protecting yourself and you're protecting everybody else. And the best ways to do that are to uh, well be less stressed. So uh, so download some John Richardson uh, on YouTube <laughs> do and, and have, have a laugh. Make sure you're eating some healthy food. Do a bit of exercise, make sure you get uh, plenty of sleep. I mean, basically sort of treat yourself well and your immune system will respond. And that'll be one of the things
0: that will help all of us deal with this problem. My advice for the lockdown would be around mental health, around, you know, Mm -hmm. how do you look after yourself? um, Echoing what Mark's saying. And I think, you know, grow a pot plant, you know nurture something if you can't be nurturing your own family uh, that's alive. Uh, and I've been using the five or six questions that people have been sharing uh, for the like your daily quarantine check-in, which I think are really useful, which is just what am I grateful for today? Who am I checking in with and connecting with today? What expectations of normal am I letting go of today? How am I getting outside today? How am I moving my body today? And what beauty am I creating, cultivating, or inviting in today? And I think those have been really, really useful for for us in our household. And people have said, you know, perhaps we should be writing not to-do lists, but to-care lists. Like, what do we want to care about, think about, feel, uh, and who do we want to be touching and connecting in with?
1: I mean, I I love the sentiment, but I'll, I'll be honest, for me, 99% of the reason to write a to-do list is a few easy ticks and uh, get a few things crossed off. Stick Get Dressed on your to-do list. You can have that done by <laughs> half eight. Stick Empathize More with Broader Society. You're not ticking that off that day, are you? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess you could care for, you know, if I put, like, care for my mum and then I sent her a text, can I tick that off? Uh, you can exactly. Well, it depends what's in the text, surely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had. Uh, I received an email from each of you this morning ahead of this recording, and Ed, Ed sent me a list of the 100 fastest growing and declining <laughs> industries on the internet. And Mark, you sent me a recipe for dal. <laughs> yeah. So I think you've sort of illustrated the two sides of your personalities there, perhaps. <laughs> I am actually. I'm an all joking aside. Because one thing I do in this sort of crisis is lurch towards food and I feel very uncomfortable if I wake up and I don't know exactly what we're having for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And I have decided that we're having a dal for tea tonight. So, I mean, what a cliffhanger for podcast episode two. I'm going to cook the dal you recommended and that you told me was the best dal recipe in the world? Well, it's definitely the best dal recipe in my world. <laughs> They're very good. So one of the features we'll return to week on week is Pointless Futures. We discuss quite a lot how we want future society to look and things we want to be a part of it. And it's worth having a look at the future as it stands now and products that are soon to be available that perhaps ought not to. And uh, Ed, I think you this week have uh, found a product that has questionable
0: merit. (laughs) I think that's the understatement. Uh, Yes, this is the world's first authentic smart candle. Uh, (laughs) It's called the Candle Touch. Uh, which has a live fire flame that you can ignite by pressing a button on an app on your phone. Uh, So, you know, if you've ever felt that you need to be relieved of the hassle of striking a match, um, you know, one of those really high intensity uh, bits of labor that needs to be time saved. Uh, Having said that, in our sort of apocalyptic era, then maybe for those people who are lacking fire creating skills, uh, then maybe a candle which is lit by a phone might not be a bad thing. And for those of us who would rather prefer to light a candle than curse the darkness, uh, this may be an exception to that rule.
1: I mean, to play devil's advocate... A world in which people don't have to have matches in their house is is surely a, a safer world. I don't know about your kids, but my kids
2: grab hold of my phone all the time with that app on there. They could probably set fire to the house from a distance.
1: <laughs> 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 it's called the candle touch. Does that mean you can touch the okay. flame, or is it a real flame?
0: No, it's a real flame, and uh, you know it works with real wax and everything. It just the only thing that is is fake about it is the ignition switch or the. Oh, so it's a wax. Remote. It's not
1: even a, a sort of. Inf- I'm picturing an infinitely burning. You buy it Isn't once, that? it burns yeah. forever. It's just a candle.
0: You top up the wax yourself. Yeah, it's it's just the ignition, which is powered by your phone.
1: So at some point, you have to melt hot wax in your house and pour it into <laughs> a base unit.
0: Yeah, nothing about this makes any sense at all.
1: Well, also, I can picture the advert will be like a group of young people sat around and suddenly it gets late and they want to light a candle and someone goes, but I haven't got a match. And somebody lights it on their phone. Right. And in the advert, the response is how cool. Whereas in reality, if you were at someone's house and they reached for their smartphone and put a candle on, you'd think, oh, I'm friends with an absolute tosser. (laughs) How on earth did that
0: happen? I never knew you were a dick. Another proof that people in Silicon Valley had more money than sense in the venture capitalist world. The worst one was the juicero, which was another one which came out of Silicon Valley, which was essentially a a sort of countertop juicer that sat in your kitchen. And you bought pre-mixed pouches of juice which you plugged into it uh, which they squeezed into a glass Uh, until someone at Bloomberg pointed out that actual fact you could just squeeze the pouch into a glass and it would do exactly the same (laughs) job and save you $400 Uh, and that they had raised almost a million dollars in venture capital funding for something which is again utterly pointless
1: So there we go. That, I think, is the end of our first episode. There will be more of these. They'll cover a broad range of topics. You may, of course, select the topics, or if you have any feelings about uh, the future, as uh, you suspect it will be, or as you'd like it to be, and you want to get in touch with your hopes or fears. I genuinely mean this. Uh, Mark and Ed are two of the most informed people I've had the pleasure to meet, and they do a wonderful job of making me feel better about things that I genuinely don't feel very good about. If you want the same experience, you can reach us by email at hello at com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenotes all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F, uh, Jandthef, if you like. That's what nobody's calling it. At J and the F, and of course you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letters swapped around. that's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at FruCool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. and I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. So there we go, uh, at Optimist on Tour, at Through Call, at Ron Jitterson. Do uh, get in touch. Uh, Thank you, as ever, for listening. Thank you, Mark and Ed. I guess I would usually end a podcast by asking what you're going to be up to until we next meet, but it's going to be mainly DAL based let's be honest. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Ed's girlfriend teaching him more explicit Italian
0: phraseology <laughs> the other thing that my girlfriend's been doing is she's actually we got an old pot plant that died in the kitchen and she discovered uh, a, a leopard slug that was living in the pot and she's now kind of raising a slug circus in the <laughs> kitchen so we have a flower <laughs> pot with a whole family of, of slugs which now have different names different photos to identify them and we get a nightly slug update so that's about reconnecting with nature
1: i mean when i wake up tomorrow morning and i write my to care list the first person I'm going to check on Ed is you, because this has been quite revealing of some problems in the Gillespie household. Uh, sadly, now it's, it's time to go. I have to leave you to your girlfriend, who seems not to want to have you around, and your pet slug living on your dead pot plant. And um, just just wish for better times for you. And um, <laughs> if you need to talk, you just ring me anytime. <laughs> So thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with a podcast all about food. So enjoy another week of eating whatever you like before Mark and Ed make you feel guilty about everything you put in your face. See you then.